You're listening to highlights from the Creative Processes interview with fiction writer and environmental activist Rick Bass. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. As a writer, I just think of myself as a voice for my values, a voice for myself. And I would be foolish, as foolish as I would be inaccurate to think that my values are someone else's or that my voice is, is someone else's. I just write what I love and what I don't want to see lost or what I grieve that has been lost. Shakespeare is reported to have said all literature is about loss or the recognition of loss. And that sounds like kind of a bummer, but I think it may be so. Even when you're celebrating something, implicit in that celebration is the acknowledgement that it is not permanent or not enduring, that it is a moment. And that's why you celebrate it. As an activist, I do often consider myself a voice for this landscape where I live, which has been hammered by extractive industries precisely because there hasn't been anyone living here to speak to illuminate what's happening. I am very aware as an activist that the stories I bring forth from this place will go to a larger world and will be a form of education and illumination. And I feel that heavily and daily. There's a lot of stuff going on in this corner of the world. You referenced the Children's Trust case where the court agreed that children do have a right to a clean and healthy environment. And a couple of weeks later, a little group that I work with, we were in court suing the government over a proposed giant clear about hundreds of acres in an ancient forest. And we prevailed. And the judge said one of the reasons we prevailed was the government had not done a carbon assessment on their proposal. Government said everything is infinitesimal on its own, so it doesn't matter. The damage done by this 754-acre clear-cut would be infinitesimal in the scope of things. And the judge, it just took my breath away. He stepped back and he stopped and he said, well, by that rationale, does anything matter? It's flooding in Vermont. People are dying in the desert southwest. If this old forest doesn't matter, then what does matter? And it was just a beautiful line of reasoning. And so that was precedent setting also that now the Forest Service has to do carbon assessments before they propose to take away tens of thousands of metric tons per hectare of ancient trees. So as an activist, it is a military campaign. It is a battle. It is a war. You use all of these violent terms and images of resistance and of, of conflict, because it is conflict. And I went into this old forest that we were seeking to defend and did successfully defend for now called Black Ram. And every kind of tree that's found in this ecosystem up here is in there. And every tree, every species has ancient representatives there. There are young trees there also where giants have fallen through the canopy and then the new young ones rush up in that slash of sunlight, almost like a note of music. The Forest Service had already spray painted the trees they were going to cut. It was garish. It was orange and blue, 20 and 30 foot striped on the trunks of these 600, 700, 800 year old trees. It was just vandalism. And I usually get really, really angry in those situations. And that doesn't always help. It doesn't always work. And it's not sustainable. It's toxic. And I just got so tired. I just lay down on this incredibly soft, spongy forest floor, just bejeweled with emerald moss on these old rotting carcasses of the giants that had fallen. And then the new giants had grown up out of them. And just this museum of timelessness. And I don't know how long I slept, maybe a minute, maybe five minutes, 15. I, I don't know. But I woke up. I, I wasn't angry. And I walked out. The Forest Service had already built a road to the edge of the old forest, this gaping clear cut at the edge of it. And you could see the heat vapors coming up out of the clear cut and the brilliance of this white light. And it was really cool and beautiful gold diffuse light in the old forest. And I thought, let's make a guitar out of a piece of one of these giant spruces that they've knocked over building this road. I met a friend earlier that week who had showed me this incredible guitar made by a master luthier here in Bozeman named Kevin Kopp. 
And it was just that memory of that instrument was still in my subconscious. And I thought, okay, cop makes his guitars out of tight-grained old spruce. I'll bring him a piece of spruce from this carnage at the edge of the old forest. And that's what I did. I went back with my chainsaw and cut out a length of it, wheelbarrowed it out, drove it to Kevin, kept watering it on the drive there, 425-mile drive, watering it like a baptism to keep it from checking and splitting it and strapped it in tight with a seat belt. And a year later, he made this guitar and it's just this exquisite instrument. It's like a Stradivarius. He is the best at what he does. And the sounds from that guitar are so otherworldly there. It's what he calls a fast attack, but a slow decay. The sound just bounces right out. But then it's just so rich, even from the beginning, without having had the experience of opening up through decades or centuries of musicians playing it. It was ready-made. It's a little undersized guitar, about seven-eighths size, Nick Lucas style, but it has a really large sound hole. She can handle anything anyone throws at her, whether it's delicate or big sound. So it's just a great joy to be passing her around to musicians and asking them to play a song of resistance or celebration. And that's what we're going to do at Climate Aid. We're going to have it be an annual event like Farm Aid, not a totally original model. And we want it to be big. We want it to be Woodstock and its pivot point, the way the Children's Trust court case was pivotal, the way this Black Ram court case we had and one was pivotal. We want Climate Aid to be a celebration. And this one guitar exploring the question, can one tree save a forest? Can one song save a forest? And we think the answer is yes, we believe it will be. What we want to do with the forest that the guitar came from is establish it as a climate refuge, a place dedicated to storing as much carbon in long-term safekeeping as possible. We want the climate refuge to be really big. We want it to store a ton of carbon. We want it to be a, a focal point for increased scientific and artistic inquiry. We've brought in the world's leading climate scientist, and they've analyzed it, and they're proposing studies that should happen there. We've brought in our country's leading artist, and they have experienced it and responded to it in their own way. The, the poet laureate Ada Lamone has been in and wrote a beautiful poem that went live yesterday in the Atlantic. You can find it there. And the poet laureate of Mississippi, Beth Ann Finley, came and wrote an incredible poem. We've had performance artists come and play music in the forest. So we want to establish the nation's first climate refuge. There is no such designation. We want it to be in Black Ram, this forest that almost got erased, a forest that was a thousand years old and almost went away, but we're getting a second chance. We saved it. Now we want to preserve it for another thousand years to study it. But we don't want to stop there. We want the government to establish a series of climate refuges all along the northern tier of the United States, what we think of as a necklace of green, a curtain of green, and from there to go around the globe, across northern Europe and northern Asia, and then back around to Alaska. The amount of carbon that can be kept safely sequestered there is extraordinary. The numbers are almost unbelievable. I will say, having been an oil and gas geologist, I learned a lot in the making of maps, the prospecting, the exploration of buried strata and underground structures that you can't see. That's a lot what writing is like. So I was learning to write without realizing I was learning to write. So when I left geology and went over to story writing, it was pretty much the same skill set. I don't go back and look at early writings, but I do think that's certainly how I learned was through the osmosis of doing other things, whether it was looking for oil and gas or football. I loved football as a young man, and the logic of the game's rules made a lot of sense to me. Exploit 
the unexploited territory on the field, run to set up the pass to set up the run. There's a rivering, sinuous narrative to moving the ball down the field or preventing it from being moved down the field. And yet there's also this brute physical of imposing one's will upon one's opposition. And this is all metaphor for art. Sometimes you're delicate, sometimes you go right for the throat. Being a hunter has helped teach me how to write through osmosis without thinking about writing. Again, you have just a few clues. You're mindful and conscious of a lot of things, a lot of things not to do, which is how it is in writing. Like, don't go in with the wind at your back or they'll smell you coming. Don't do this. Don't do that. It's kind of like writing. Don't use adverbs. Don't tell. A lot of negative situational awarenesses. Yeah, maybe anything you learn can help you be a writer when you switch over to it, as long as you know that thing, that other thing. I think the challenge for our time as activists and as citizens is choosing meaningful battles, choosing battles that will not crush us, choosing, which is to say, things that have an element of fun to them. And again, that's why we're bringing music to climate aid. It makes it easier for people to engage. Like, okay, if you can help defend against climate change by listening to music and by really considering the piece of wood that is making that music, that's a win. I think we have to change the style of our engagement as activists. I think we have to do something that's, I hate using all these cliches, more sustainable. The old patterns of fighting until one is worn down to the bone, that's not working. We have to find new models, new ways of defending and celebrating our values and, again, imposing our will on the opposition. And if we're not having fun, whatever that looks like, whether it's individually or as a group, I think the opposition is so large and so strong that we can't play by their rules, which are brute force and crushing and fighting. I think we have to be more creative. That's something we can do that, that they don't do as well. I'm speaking in abstractions now, but I just keep coming back to that guitar, that 315-year-old spruce tree. I mean, it took light from above. It took sunlight, converted it to fiber, to wood. It retained the rhythms and patterns of that growth, that sunlight in its wood, and that is communicated through the tone of the music coming from the guitar. It's essentially sunlight captured, and it's also got the nutrition from the forest floor, the soil that the roots took their nurturing sustenance from. It is literally the voice of the forest. And that's a long way of saying finding different ways to fight. I said the F word. Finding different ways to engage, finding different ways to celebrate, finding different ways to resist, and to have something positive be in those ways. I do feel like it, it's in this chaos, in this crisis, in this fragmentation, there is opportunity. And I do think that artists are in a position to lead where previously they have not been. And I think it's for those reasons that you mentioned when humanity is, has been benumbed, desensitized from so much external advertising stimuli. People are hungry for something real, something not artificial, for a natural intelligence rather than artificial intelligence. And that is, to my thinking, one that is more inclusive of other forms of intelligence, not just humans, but that of the natural world, the intelligence of animals, the intelligence of geology, the intelligence of fully formed ecosystems and functions. I think we're hungry for as we lose our humanity, as we sense and see it becoming not just marginalized, but again, desensitized, I think we're really hungry for stories about what it's like to touch, taste, scent, smell, see, hear. It's that simple. That's what artists do. That's what we're best at is conveying those five senses. And I think those five senses are becoming withered and atrophied to us culturally. We hope you've enjoyed listening to these highlights. To listen to the latest episodes or learn more about participating in exhibitions or interviews, click on subscribe. Thank you for listening.